Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. Check us out every Friday where we review the content of our Roundup post Another Week Ends, which is a Christian cosmopolitan's guide to a grace-infused picture of what's on the web every week. And also look out for special episodes featuring publications and other things that we find of interest. I'm Scott Jones. I'll be your host. And now on to a conversation with David Zoll about this week's Another Week Ends. All right, I'm back once again with David Zoll, the director, founder, and animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird <laughs> Ministries. How's it going, David? Happy December, Scott. That's glad to be on here again. Thanks. December is it's it's a good month, and it's Happy one of Advent. my twelve Excuse favorite me. months. I hope you're having a blessed Advent at, at, at this point. At this you juncture, can't, you can't have Advent the day after Thanksgiving. I, I was walking yesterday in downtown Philadelphia. It's all just Christmas music, right? Yeah, I have some friends who are sort of uh, really they they toe the line on no Christmas music before December 25th, and I, that's a losing battle if I've ever heard of one. But I I, I understand the liturgical calendar, but. All the cards are stacked against us. Absolutely. That is a losing hand if I ever saw one. It's like do seven offsuited for poker fans. Plus there's some like really good new Christmas <clears throat> music that's come out. So that's even harder to resist. That makes it doubly difficult. Yeah, it's sort of like opening your Christmas presents early as a kid. It's sort of sneaking down. It's sort of like it's the maybe the liturgical adult version of something <laughs> of that fashion. All right. I'm glad we have a liturgical version of that. Exactly. You know, you're young at heart, dude. Young at heart. So this week, with Another Week Ends, we there's a lot going on, not the least of which we are experiencing. I mean, this is pretty constant in our culture, but but, an in, but still a rising fervor of shaming. Shame. 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 Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's everything's about shame. There's uh, fat shaming, and there's race shaming, and there's, um, uh, you know, uh, I, right now what we're dealing with is prayer shaming, and it's um, there. Shame has become such a buzzword that you, you know, it's such an important and important emotional reality that you really don't want it to become to lose its um, its value. But it is it is starting to with um, this buzzword currently of prayer shaming. I don't know. You've heard about it, right? Oh yeah, the, the, and the New York Post cover about this prayer's not doing anything. I mean, I was pretty even even people. You know, usually you can predict like on any given issue, like you know, between five and eight o'clock. Okay, let me guess what side Fox is going to take. Then let me guess which side MSNBC will take. But even the, some of the most liberal people on MSNBC were just so embarrassed that right. people would say this prayer shaming stuff. Like, I mean, come on, who's against? I mean, that's like next thing it's going to be like we're against puppies. We're against, you know. I know. I mean, the, the New York Times wrote that column about it, right? When they they they, they do and they they go through and they unpack uh, buzzwords and like you know. Um, 
diversity or um, uh, they've done a, a bunch actually that are super interesting. Tolerance, what does that mean? Um, yeah, what does it mean to be a hater? All these kind of words. And they, they, they recently, like I think six weeks ago, talked about thoughts and prayers. Do those two words, when they're coupled together, do they have any meaning anymore? And um, they were sort of exploring it from the kind of the vacuousness of the way politicians use it publicly. They, in no sense, were they going toward the prayer is meaningless, no one should ever pray, kind of uh, Charlie Hebdo side of things, which we're seeing on um, Twitter at the moment in the wake of the San Bernardino uh, shooting. People saying, stop praying and start acting. All this, um, uh, there's, there's that, there's, there's the sort of railing against the superficial or the rhetoric of it. But then it, what bubbles up is just a, this the kind of anti-religious sentiment or hostility that is really, really ugly to me personally, but it's also, um, I think it, it, it does more harm than good in terms of people who are trying to uh, get rid of the use of the words thoughts and prayers in that way. But man, oh man, I can't, uh, it's remarkable. But at the same time, I also want to th- say that I think next week we'll be talking about something different. <laughs> like yeah, the, right. the it doesn't have, yeah. News cycles, at least if, I mean, well, the one grace is even in the worst ones, they're usually quick. Yeah. It is interesting though. I do think there, there is a point to that Times article you're referencing when a politician uses certain codes, code words like prayer. But here's the interesting thing. I, I, we tend to think like politicians are, are worse than we are. Mm-hmm. I think it's almost like they're probably more scrupulous a lot of times because more people are watching them. And sometimes I think we just get like the mirror of ourselves. So how many times have I caught myself saying, I'm praying for you when I'm not. Right. <laughs> when it's just a sentiment, rather than being on it, just saying, hey, I've been thinking about you or I really care about you. It becomes the shorthand when I've said it when I haven't prayed for the person. This I hope no one at my church listens to this, but they do. So now yeah. for every, everyone's going to be suspect, right? <laughs> but we, well, yeah, so many people do that, though, including me. Mm-hmm. But it's it's an expression of empathy. It's not um, necessary. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we, we you don't have to think of something novel to say every time something terrible happens. I mean, if it if it makes it worse, if it's like basically if it's become the akin to saying, "Hey, uh, he's in a better place now," when someone's really suffering from a in, in grief, and and you basically try to plaster over it with some platitude, then it's really bad. And I think I do sympathize with a lot of the pushback on the on the usage of thoughts and prayers. Um, from people that you wouldn't, you know, describe as quote unquote prayer warriors. But, um, I think, you know, we got to say something. We want to say something. What does it say about us that we want to say something that we want to, um, sympathize or at least say, this is affecting me. I am not, uh, neutral about what has just occurred. And to, uh, as a Christian, my only, um, or even as a, someone who doesn't identify as Christian, you know, I'm, I'm brought to beyond the bounds of my ability to, uh, comprehend or even to, um, influence something. So I'm going to pray. And I think that that's a beautiful thing, but it's also, uh, you know, it's the, the law of us having to say the right thing at all times and in all places. It's, 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 it stinks. I, I don't know what else, <laughs> you know, it, it, we have to let people off the hook a little bit for, um, saying they're trying to empathize 
And um, can we empathize with the empathy or do we have to beat them up into uh, proper attitudes immediately when something like this has happened, um, especially on social media where, you know, my friend tweeted the other day, it's like, thoughts and prayers are useless, uh, says, uh, you know, hundreds of people writing uh, you know, 140 character messages to complete strangers. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is we can be gracious and keep the traditional. We don't have to do like the Seinfeld move where they're tired of Gesundheit. And so instead they go, you're good looking. You're so good looking. You know, you're that's so the one phrase that he always thought wanted to catch on, but never did. So instead, so we're going to keep, we don't have to go, hey, I'm beyond the bounds of my influence and I'm affected and empathetic. We can stick with <laughs> thoughts and prayers. Yeah, we can stick with thoughts and prayers. I I, I think it's nice to surface it, but the what, what is bothersome is the, another thing that's really bothersome. It's not only the the real hostility that you have to just be, um, you have to really be an optimist to say that there's no hostility coming out. Um, that said, it's also the internet and everything's sort of inflated. So you know, it's not like I go around my town and people are yelling, "Stop saying thoughts and prayers at me." You know, generally speaking, people are usually okay with that. Um, it's the politicians we don't like. But the other thing it reveals that is so um, troubling is the way that people understand Christian – the faith and works um, linking. You know, It's like it's not enough to have a person who has faith. You also have to do good works. You have to act, action and belief. Um, you know, that is – that's our bread and butter with Mockingbird. But you all of a sudden have, uh, you know, millions of people talking about the faith and works debate in a sort of a secularized way. And where do they come down on? Guess where they all come down on? Works. You know, that's what everyone wants to – you've got to work hard. You know, basically what they're shouting is – be the church. Just be the better at the church. Be better at being a Christian. And you know, the truth is we pray because we're not good at being Christians and we're not good at being uh, upstanding, virtuous people. We're not good at responding in the right ways. So I don't know. I, I think it's kind of amusing to see everyone riff on, you know, hey, Jesus himself, you know, didn't he prayer shamed the Pharisees? You want to say? <laughs> I've seen, I've seen that. It's good enough for me. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to prayer shame everyone. And you think to yourself, good Lord, you know, if that's your vision of what it means to be a Christian, uh, that everyone has to, their actions have to be in line with their beliefs at all times. Well, that is the opposite of what Christianity actually is. So, um, it reveals an impasse that's almost impossible to negotiate on social media, frankly. But it's also a place of real hope, I think, because it is it is what gets us in touch with that discrepancy, which is where we um, actually pray, where we actually pray. I picked up this book at a Baptist church funeral I was at a couple weeks ago, and it was by some pastor. I think he's like a mega church pastor, but it said the book was called Not a Fan. And it was, are you a real follower of Jesus? Are you just a fan? Like a follower, you know goes you know has christian books or this but a, but a fan does that but a follower does at the end i thought maybe i'm just a fan i guess i think i'm just a fan who's not a fan i'm looking around like where are like the good news is most people actually are fans of jesus though too you know That's they're true. not fans of christians uh That's they're not fans of his of his non-fans i guess you'd say i don't i don't even know how to keep going with that <laughs> but yeah uh 
it yeah, is just, interesting. Just do too. do more. When you think of the the when I think of like the faith works debate, and you think about a book like Galatians, and some of the scholarship, you know, some scholars think, well, the exclusion of the Gentiles is really about punctilier law observance, and other scholars think, well, it's not so much that these group of people thought they were perfect of the law, but they thought the fact that they had certain markers made them in the in crowd and the others at the out crowd. And I, either one is different. It's just, is a legalism thing. But, but I think the latter that some scholars think it's the shame stuff. It, it mirrors almost what we, we're going through today where there are these identity markers mm-hmm. and maybe like we're, it, it's interesting. Like you brought this up before, even though we're in a permissive on some level, permissive culture, it's still a performance pressure cooker, and it's still and the in the shame factor. I think is worse. Um, it's gotten worse over the years, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. You know, we talk about the difference between a guilt culture and a shame culture, where shame is your 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 uh, is about who you are, and guilt is about what you do, and guilt is good, and shame is bad. And, uh, I I don't know. I know that we're we're both a guilt and shame culture yeah. <laughs> at the moment. We're not one or the other. We're just obsessed with talking about how good we are while making each other feel extremely bad. And it's a very uh, um, I, I here I sound like some kind of reactionary probably, but things like this are are sad because you're also reacting to something that's that's even deeply more deeply sad, which are these shootings, which are what is going on with um, people. And, uh, you know, put inside the gun, gun control debate, what is going on with people that they would want to do this, that they would see this as what they needed to do, or that, you know, that's, uh, these are things we should lament about and pray about and, um, be talking about. But instead, I'm sitting here fixating on, um, how people conceive religion. So Christianity, I don't know, there, but there, at least we got Bill Murray, right? We do. Uh, John? We do. So I jump ship in Hong Kong, and I make my way over to Tibet, and I get on as a looper at a course over there in Himalayas. A looper? It's a looper. You know, a caddy, a looper. Jack. So I tell him I'm a pro jack. And who do you think they give me? The Dalai Lama himself. The 12th son of the Lama. The flowing robes, the grace, bald. Striking. So I'm on a first tee with him. I give him the driver. He hauls off and whacks one. Big hitter in the Lama. Long. Into a 10,000-foot crevice right at the base of this glacier. Do you know what the Lama says? No. Gunga Galunga. Gunga Gunga Let's Let's go there. So we finish 18. Yeah. You, so you have featured this article here in Another Weekends about Bill Murray secular the peculiar ascent uh to his status as a secular saint yeah he's it's uh it's a guy in the new york times writing about how bill murray has somehow slowly come to represent something much more than himself he's this force of nature almost that everyone likes and this very week, Netflix is releasing like a Bill Murray Christmas special, which is just basically Bill. It's not. It's not. We're not watching Scrooge over and over again. It's. It's just Bill Murray being Bill Murray. The idea being, it, most of it's based not only on the scripts he chooses and the you know wonderful Wes Anderson films and Sofia Coppola and and whatnot, but really the all these stories that continue to come out about things he does 
when he's not on screen, you know, photo bombing uh, wedding photos and, and singing karaoke to random people, um, on the street or at, at clubs, hanging out at just walking into parties on the lower east side of Manhattan. And, uh, you know, this guy has, seems to have some freedom to him. Uh, the, that article actually taught me, I had no idea that he went and crashed Elvis's funeral. Did you know that? I did not know that. He was doing this before social media. It's not, it's not, uh, an act really. Uh, clearly he's never, he's always sort of gone where he wanted to go and did what he wanted to do in a way that is not, um, lascivious. It's not full of uh, mean things. He goes and does fun kind of interesting, um, I don't know, humane, uh, adventurous type of things, which is, which is what, what people are responding to. And that's what I respond to. I love Bill Murray. I just love the guy. Yeah. You know, Thomas Merton talks about this. We're like, there's a difference between seeing yourself and being yourself. It's yeah. our shadow side our, our sort of where the law pushes us, where performancism pushes us. It's like, okay, who are people seeing? Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. They like somebody that's really hard working, but not too hard working. Seems laid back, aloof, but yet engaged. Okay. As opposed to just being yourself when like, you're not really conscious of what people are seeing as much, but you're just being yourself. And Bill Murray seems like that kind of guy. It seems like most of the time, He's not seeing himself. He's really just being himself. Yeah, I think that is what it boils down to. He's what we used to call self-realized. And it's actually, you know, that they had a, a just, uh, there was some dialogue on Fargo this past week, this incredible new season of Fargo that had, uh, talked all about the difference between seeing and being. Dude, I'm so embarrassed. I'm not watching Fargo. Well, you've got to rectify that. Um, and you've also got to watch Rectify. <laughs> I know. That's another one I haven't watched. It's on my list, though. It's yeah. on my list. Well, the, the Bill Murray thing's fun. And there's, you know, a week like this, we need we need fun. What is your favorite Bill Murray film? Well, I mean, I, my favorite, I, I couldn't say favorite film. I'd say favorite role of his is almost definitely Herman Bloom uh, in uh, Rushmore. I just, um, I, I love what about Bob? I, you know, his, he, when he played Hunter S. Thompson, that was pretty incredible. I like, uh, Ghostbusters and all these things, but I would say that the Wes Anderson stuff takes it all to a different level. I really like Broken Flowers that he did with Jim Jarmusch. That was pretty good where he plays more of the sad guy, but Herman Bloom combined all of it. The scene where he blocks the kid from shooting a basket, the little kid shooting a basket on a playground is, so funny, and I'm positive it was ad libbed. You have like a very cultured Bill Murray pal. Like I'm thinking, you know, so I caddy for the llama, flowing robes, <laughs> big hit of the llama. Oh yeah, I mean the Caddyshack <laughs> stuff's great too. They said that you know when Harold Ramis, um, Judd Apatow, who, who did that book about all the comedians, you know, he interviewed. He said when he was interviewing Harold Ramis, when they made Caddyshack, that basically. Um, they thought, all right, this is the new Hollywood, the rise of the new Hollywood. We're going to have like a, a big press conference to promote this movie. 9.30 in the morning. Like, first off, I don't think Rodney or Bill Murray had seen 9.30 before. <laughs> and one of the guys, one of the writers just winds up cursing out the reporters and his family. Because he was like hungover. <laughs> and like the, the article like the next day was like, if this is the new Hollywood, we want the old Hollywood back. <laughs> <laughs> That's house. amazing, man. I think I think that those stories um, about Bill Murray, though, they, they've continued, and people he, right now maybe he is the old Hollywood to people. Yeah, and I think that there's something beautiful about uh, in a different way. I mean, your dad has talked about this in a recent podcast about Pope Francis. Now you want to understand something about the Jesus effect? Like, mm -hmm. d don't go read all this like um, 
you know, this kind of super big tomes of erudite Jesus scholarship, look at Pope Francis and how people are climbing up on trees or people, they, they just want to see his gaze or like he reduces John Boehner to like a, 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 a child in the best sense, like, a, yeah. like the inner child. And I think in, in a different way, there's like a secular version of that maybe in Bill Murray. I mean, there's this, <laughs> there's this kind of levity, but, but also kind of stripping away pretense, anxiety, stress, the things that kind of put us in the seeing ourselves mood. And so maybe there's sort of a gift of like helping other people be themselves by spontaneity. Well, you know what? I should tell. I should actually tell a certain story because I've told this in a, in a sermon before, and this is a true story. And I can't really give away too much about how I know that it's true, but it's true. So, Bill Murray owns a minor league baseball team in Charleston, South Carolina, and um, I have a. I know I have an acquaintance who works with um, veterans. He's a, he's a psychologist for veterans and runs all these groups, and a lot of things that. Um, Veterans often struggle with uh, it's agoraphobia. Mm-hmm. Is that that's crowds, right? Yeah, uh, is it crowds? Is it crowds or outdoors? Outdoors. It's outdoors. Outdoors. It's, and and uh, very much frightened of that. And so what? Um, they're doing some kind of exposure therapy. They get him to go to go to outdoor things where people are and where they've congregated, and he gets him to finally go to this uh, this game. And uh, <clears throat> he goes to a minor league baseball game. And he's sitting there and he's freaking out, <clears throat> but I think he's kind of making his way through it. Well, anyway, the, the the heavens open and it starts to rain. At which point, everyone rushes into uh, these sort of um, you know the enclosed space, like little hallways, and the, the game sort of ends. And they're all everyone's packed into these rooms, and that's at his absolute nightmare to be with that many people. I think it's the fear of crowds is what what he's what his fear was. I don't know if that's agoraphobia or not. Anyway. He's so he sits there and he he's petrified. He can't move. He's sitting there out in the rain, and uh, the rain's just pouring down. And Bill Murray is up in the owner's box and sees this guy, and leaves the owner's box and goes down and sits with him for like two hours, and they just hang out. And like the the guy's life was never the same. Wow. I don't know what they talked about. I just know that someone. It's like this sort of you know. A dissex machina, you know, he comes down and he's with this guy in his petro, you know, petrification and fear, and just is with him. He's not coercive. He's he's just there, and um, he's also he's also Bill Murray. So this guy kind of, I think it was the catalyst to his healing. This um this vet. That's a true story. I I, I didn't make it up. I promise you. Yeah, it didn't sound made up. <laughs> if it was made up, you're a good storyteller. I mean, that they, that, you know, I mean, it was. I mean, you know, it didn't sound over rehearsed or pretentious. That's good. <laughs> Lastly, uh, I was kind of interested in another. You had some interesting things in another weekend about sanctification, and this one was this article from this Methodist guy, Brent White, and the title was "Self Improvement Is Killing Me." Right, <laughs> which is interesting because it's kind of a tradition that has tended to kind of, you know, focus a, a, a little more on a sort of like, you know, ju- just at least the character of it is you know justification, getting us right. That's God's work. But then mm-hmm. our part, kind of, you know, our part is in cooperating with that and kind of, you know, making ourselves the project that's worth working on and. Yeah, from glory unto glory, and he's sort of saying this kind of burned me out. 
Right, right. It burns out a lot of people. I think, uh, uh, Brent, uh, I read his blog post. I just noticed that he'd linked to us and, um, it's just a very sincere wrestling with, with, um, the difference between sanctification and justification and how actually tied to one another they are. That the second you start to separate sanctification and justification, he uses Gerhard Ferde's stuff in there about sanctification is actually just getting the process of getting used to your, uh, justification. And that makes people very nervous. Uh, but it's, um, the, it is, it is beautiful. The way it is touched down in his life, um, you know, what would a person do if they truly believed that they were, um, acquitted? Uh, they were, they were absolved. What, how would they begin to act towards themselves and other people? You know, um, what would, what would be the sort of behavior that would flow out of a, a person who had been assured of their own forgiveness and justification that wasn't looking to every little situation to, um, to eke some kind of affirmation, some, some yes out of every little exchange. And so, uh, that is what is so exhausting when we when we do engage in that kind of self justification, when we're yeah yeah sorry I, no I I was gonna say I think what you just explained there is one of the most helpful takes on that because I think the whole kind of well if you this is going to lead to sort of the more sin I make the more grace I take and then we're gonna have Lord of the Flies and you know like I think that like I always sometimes I ask people like in in, in preaching I'll say like right, like think about over the past few months, the courageous moments you had, the moments when you really were being yourself, the moments where you took risks, mm-hmm. when you did things that you hope your kids would, would see or something like that. You know, they, they, There are probably moments you felt loved, accepted, assured, you know, and, and from that came the ability to be your best self. Now think about the moments where you were calculating, cowardly, where Maybe you did the right thing for all the wrong reasons, you know, and you feel really guilty about it. My guess is that it probably wasn't on the heels of moments where you felt tremendous love, understanding, embrace, and acceptance. It's so I think that you're absolutely right. I think the more, the more it's like there's kind of a once for all, but then there's an again and again. And I think in the again and again is where the higher and deeper comes, you know, from that. Yeah. Most of the people that get so upset about the sanctification, justification, argument and i you know there's some things in scripture that you we need you need to address that where it's not as clear cut as i think uh sometimes we make it seem or maybe gerhard Ferdinand makes it seem there are uh times of the day when you just don't feel like getting out of bed and um it's i i people get very nervous about when us reducing these things however if you get into the psychology of it you have to go to the psychology which i know is another thing that makes people nervous but when i'm nervous whenever, right now David, i'm shaking <laughs> but the the we can say all we want that oh i'm not doing this stuff because i'm looking for my justification i'm looking for just want to please god and it's like that is superficial i mean at least um I don't know what's in your head, but for the majority of people that I know, that uh, there isn't a once-time thing. That in fact, there they do. We say, well, you know, this is about sanctification, not justification. You know, our justification is secured. Well, um, that's not honest to the psychological reality of uh, the fact that we are not assured of that, and that everything in our mind and our culture is telling us the opposite. So. Um, you have to go to the psychological realm. It doesn't mean that you can't um, 
you don't want to describe this all the time. You don't want to be talking about the mechanics of it all the time, almost ever, in fact. But um, that's what Brent is unpacking into to my ears so beautifully, is that the, psych- the, the deeper psychological insight is that we never actually uh, believe that we're justified. And so therefore, our sanctification always becomes a justification project. Yeah, and, and the I left think- hand doesn't know what the right. That doesn't mean people don't become sanctified. We all know people who seem to be more holy, and maybe are, but it's always a sense of them becoming less and less, rather than it's not a linear thing. It's uh, they, they've kind of uh, so more of a death thing. Yeah, and it's interesting because Frank Lake has written about this so well, and and the more we learn about human development, we we see almost like a psychological parable of the kingdom, right? That mm-hmm. if from an early developmental stage you get the sense that your parents accept you as a gift the good the bad the ugly then that's the path to human flourishing i mean we're not we're all imperfect we're all messed up but generally the path of life is going to be a little easier for you versus people have a sense that their acceptance is conditional i mean that's where all sorts of psychological disorders come from yeah it's true. I mean, that's what my father talks about in the Panopticon in terms of his experience with his Jewish friends growing up. And I have to admit, I felt the same way because I went to school with almost all, most of my friends were Jewish in that they weren't there. They were so, their parents were so for them and they weren't really um, trying to win their approval that they would end up taking these incredible risks and have this self-confidence that maybe it looked like they were slightly neurotic on the, the front end. But uh, in fact, in their professional lives and their careers, you talk to people who are creative and in movies and whatnot, and um, they, they they often describe having they're either have either they're really angry at their parents, or they have a parent that just was for them and allowed them to take the risks that have gotten them where they were. Not not that they're actually super talented, but they had this sort of chutzpah, uh, if you will, to to get there because of that prior acceptance. That sort of my child is. He's great because he's my child, not because there's anything he's done. Well, that there's so much <laughs> more we could go into, but we're you know time is running out. But I encourage everybody to look at this edition of Another Weekends because it's great. I mean, we didn't even touch on half the stuff in there. So yeah, time for me to go uh, finish writing it. <laughs> exactly. Sat, you know, this is a great way to spend your oh, Saturday and, uh, morning. God, people should know that Monday, Monday morning, um, December, what will that be? The 6th, the 7th, um, we're releasing a new book, Mockingbird at the Movies. I'm so excited about this book. We've been working on sort of behind the scenes quietly for a long time, but it's, it's like 360 pages long, uh, gazillion essays all about, uh, movies and about everything we talk about. Just, um, use movies are the, um, the channels, the conduits and the, um, the works of art that we've appreciated and sort of bring that perspective to bear on the things that have moved us most. And I'm thrilled about it. I think people should all check it out on Monday. Maybe next week we'll have some sort of book giveaway contest. Ooh, I like, I like where you're going with that. Develop it. So everybody stay tuned. All right. Thanks for having me. Bye, Scott.